Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger. On this episode, we have a great interview with Dr. Heather Valier. Dr. Valier is a professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and specializes in orthopedic traumatology. Dr. Valier has lectured nationally and internationally on her research and on fracture techniques. She has published over 150 journal articles and 18 book chapters. She is also the 36th president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association and the first ever female president of the OTA. I hope you enjoy this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Heather Valier. I'm so excited for this. Um, so Dr. Heather Valier, thank you so much for joining us on the She Can Fix a Podcast. I'm very excited to speak with you and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I think this is a really exciting uh, opportunity for me and congratulations on developing this idea and really meeting a need, I think, in our orthopedic community. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I would love to start with your background. So in your own words, can you talk about your hometown, college, medical school, residency, fellowship, and beyond? Sure. Um, I was I was born in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then I grew up in a, a suburb. Uh, and I you know, lived there my whole life till I went away to college. My family is still there, oh. um, kind of a smaller suburb around that city. And didn't really have a lot of exposure to medicine. Thought that maybe that's what I wanted to do. And I did my undergrad at Northwestern University. And I majored in biochemistry, molecular and cell biology, and uh, was very interested in, in science, biological sciences, and then went to medical school at Stanford. Um, I had kind of a, a little bit of a circuitous pathway in that at Stanford um, at the time, and, and I think now currently too, most of the students don't follow a very traditional route, and neither did I. Took an extra year to do some research, and there are a lot of different stipends and, and um, scholarships available, which is wonderful too. And so I explored uh, things as a preclinical student and stretched out my time. Had the good fortune of meeting my husband while I was there, mm-hmm. future husband at that time. Uh, he was a graduate student. Um, got married. We started a family trying to synchronize our schedules so that he could finish his PhD. When I was finished my MD, I ended up taking an extra year to do that. And then went on to uh, residency at the University of Wisconsin. Wow. Both of us had family there. So it was really a great opportunity to be able to come back to where our families were, um, did a fellowship at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle in traumatology. Mm-hmm. And then I took my first and only job after that, and I'm still here in Cleveland, um, working at uh, Metro Health System, which is an affiliate of Case Western Reserve University, Big Level One Trauma Center. Wow, that's awesome! I had no idea that you had children um, as you were going into residency. Yeah, that was one of those things where you know you, you think I want to have a family, and you wanted to have a family, but my my husband's PhD work wasn't progressing as quickly as um, we had thought he needed a little more time. And mm-hmm. so it seemed like, well, we could try to start now. And if it works, then that's great. Cause we, otherwise we may wait several years. We weren't sure. Right. But we did. And so I had a son um, when I was in medical school and actually got pregnant with my daughter um, right around match day. Oh. And I had her when I was an intern. Oh, wow. 
And so it was very hectic, but um, really wonderful time because we're, we're pretty young. And I feel like, yeah, I'm super tired now. I would have been a lot more tired if I had waited. And I'm not sure if there's a perfect time to do this. And for us, it, it worked out really nicely. We went with it and we're blessed with two healthy kids who are now adults. And it was, um, it was really awesome how it worked out. Oh, that's, that's so special. Can you talk about the first time you knew you wanted to become an orthopedic surgeon? Sure. I came about it really kind of roundabout. And I was one of those medical students who sort of likes everything a lot, but didn't really feel a calling in any one direction. And so we had these things called early clinical experiences where every quarter you could find a different physician and a different specialty to shadow. And so I decided I'm just going to do this. I'm going to go out there. And I was trying a lot of different specialties. It was fun. I was meeting people. I was excited to have some clinical exposure. Um, and most of what I was doing was very um, either medical specialty or primary care. And my, one of my anatomy TAs ended up being an orthopedic resident oh. shortly thereafter. And he said, you should come and shadow an ortho. You know, you always liked anatomy a lot. Maybe you'd like it. I could not picture myself being a surgeon. I thought, well, I'll try it. You know, what the heck? And sure enough, I, I worked with the Pete's ortho guys at Stanford and I just had a lot of fun with shadowing them in clinic. And I kept coming to the clinic and I thought it was very interesting. The, the types of patients they would see in the different ways that they intervened in terms of developing children and they were developmental issues, they were injuries, they were scoliosis cases, tumors, a little bit of everything. And I, and I loved it. And I said, how can we just come to the clinic? Why don't you come to the OR? I guess I could do that. So I came to the OR for the first time. And that was when I knew. Oh. I just loved being in the operating room and seeing how the procedures they would do. It, it was fun. It was that element of immediate gratification of fixing things of realigning things. And then having these relationships with patients in the office. And I knew immediately that that was what I wanted to do. Oh, that's awesome. And then since you were first exposed to pediatric orthopedics, how did you make the shift to know that you wanted to specialize in orthopedic traumatology? Yeah, so I, I thought that I would go into peds and I, I really wanted to, to pursue an academic career. I had that right. in my mind, you know, kind of the whole way through medical school. And so when I was a resident at the University of Wisconsin, as an intern, we did three months of uh, orthopedic trauma. Mm -hmm. So I was exposed to that right away. And I, I was really excited about it. I really liked it. We had a great trauma team. It was very busy. It was very immersive. I loved the variety of patients, you know, as kids, adults, elderly, all over the body. And in the back of my mind, I kept thinking like, I still really like peds, don't I? And then trauma just became more and more dominant in my mind as how excited I was about uh, the resuscitation and sort of the the, the critically ill patient and the idea of working together in a team. And there was that element of the unknown that mm. I liked and other people really didn't like. So I thought, well, I'm just, just a little bit fringe. I'm different than some of my colleagues. And by my second trauma rotation as an R2, I kind of knew that that was what I wanted to do. It just, mm. it, it dominated my interests amongst all of the rotations that I was starting to, to experience, in, including the, the PEDS work. And I, I told my husband one night, kind of halfway through that second trauma rotation, which was additionally super long hours, there were no work hours restrictions, but it, and it was, it was neat. I mean, we we're working very hard. We were very exhausted, but it was my calling and, and I could tell, and I said, I think I want to go to trauma. And he totally knew that that was what I would 
want to do. And then we spent probably several weeks trying to think of, well, maybe peds or maybe foot and ankle might be a better lifestyle, but you know, I I couldn't talk myself out of it and he didn't want me to either. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what I ended up doing. And I'm, I'm so glad that I found it and made that choice. Yeah. That's so special. And I think one of the interesting things about your story is that you are a prolific researcher in that you've had over 150 published articles. You've been averaging more than 10 published articles for the past five years. And in fact, had 26 articles published last year. And so I was hoping if you could first just talk about what your favorite topic for research in orthopedic traumatology. Well, kind of my favorite thing, you know, as I got into practice was really like the multiply injured patient mm. and, and understanding how do we better care for that multiply injured patient. This gets back to why I got excited about being a traumatologist and why I wanted to pursue that, that specialty anyway. But, um, you know, I had the good fortune of working with a really high-end team of clinical uh, people. So my trauma colleagues in orthopedics and in other uh, domains, critical care specialists, our anesthesiologists, and we kind of had a, a multidisciplinary research team that I set up to, to look at things. And we, we looked a lot at resuscitation and the timing of fixation. And that's something that I became passionate about really right from the get-go. And I think this was times when I was a fellow, even the first weeks of fellowship and realizing, wow, this place is even busier than where I, where I was a resident. And, and we were getting people to the OR very efficiently to take care of their long bones, to take care of their pelvis, their acetabulum, all the injuries. And I could tell that it was making such a difference to their physiology. Whereas hmm. we have an occasional patient, not very often as a fellow, but a little bit more often as a resident that would be in traction for maybe a couple of days. By that third day, they would get really sick. They would have a lot of um, lung problems and maybe they had some underlying chest disease or underlying um, the chest trauma itself, uh, suffice to say that some of them died. They, they got ARDS, they died. And we don't really see this very much anymore. And I think it's because we've gotten better at resuscitating. We've gotten better at ventilator mm-hmm. management. But the other big piece is that we are expeditiously managing their fractures. And I was excited that this wasn't necessarily a widespread thing for the pelvis or the acetabulum as it was for maybe the femoral shaft. And so kind of pulling that all together. And then one of my best trauma friends, my my partner, Tim Moore, who's a a spine surgeon and is the director of trauma here, Hmm. he's really passionate about, you know, trying to to get all these people with mechanically unstable spines stabilized urgently too, because the same reason you can set them up, they they do so much better. And so we really spent a lot of years looking at that and trying to um, develop uh, resuscitation parameters and guidelines and that's been a lot of fun. And, and then hmm. since then, I've kind of evolved more into uh, research on recovery after trauma. And that's been a major focus of my career now for the last several years and looking at all those underlying issues that our patients bring to the table. You know, we don't really pick our patients, they pick us. We're on the call schedule and they show up. And, and um, I'm good with that because it gives you a lot of variety, but there's a lot of challenges. A lot of people have you know, substance abuse issues, of course, are very pervasive in our, in our population. There may be a pre-existing mental illness of other kinds, um, untreated mental illness, um, vocational challenges, all of these things that have such profound effect on how someone is going to do when they're recovering. And so our team has evolved to um, bring on new members that aren't part of a traditional trauma team, people who are coaches and 
and um, counselors and um, psychologists, people to help us to mitigate that burden that surrounds the trauma patient, maybe just as they come into the injury, but more often just addressing issues that weren't really well-diagnosed or well-treated prior to the trauma. And so we're doing a lot of research on how to enhance recovery after trauma. And we think this is going to really change the way that we deliver care as a profession. Wow. That's so interesting. You never really think about how, you know, back in the days they would just have people in traction. And then nowadays I feel like we're getting to them sooner. And yeah, it's interesting because it's for, at least from my standpoint, I haven't seen as much ARDS as probably folks saw 10 years ago, which is great to know that the field is continuing to improve with time. Um, some of the things that I know about orthopedic trauma research comes from one of my good friends, Dr. MK Erdman, who's chief resident at USC now doing her fellowship at Harborview next year. And one of the things that, that she talks about is the fact that it, there's a lot of difficulty doing research in orthopedic trauma because of the fact that you have a hard time controlling your variables and all of these co-founders that might exist. And so what do you do when you're doing your research in orthopedic traumatology in order to kind of control those variables? Yeah, that's, that's really tricky. I mean, for one, um, I mean, the challenge even that precedes that, I think for a lot of trauma traumatologists is that the research structure maybe in their facility is often inadequate. Maybe there's not a lot of support and you're trying to add this on on a Saturday afternoon after mm-hmm. you finish rounds and we go do research now. And, you know, it's really, it's really tough if you're sort of a one man show mm-hmm. because you can't, you need all of this other support. And, and, um, you know, we've built some research structure since I've started, um, at, at Metro Health. And that's been super helpful because then people can come up with ideas. And one of the ways specifically getting at this issue around confounders, um, heterogeneity in our trauma patients, which is super rampant is to, you know, increase the sample size for one, because then you can kind of filter it out or you could do sub studies and say, well, we're only going to look at people who are tobacco smokers. It's like half the patients who treat, um, and, and, and look at the effect of tobacco on this. And so you can, you can either, um, have so many patients that you can look at that one specific issue in the population, or you can filter it out using statistical methodology, but it is mm-hmm. substantially more difficult. And then I think on top of that too, um, many of our trauma patients, you know, work at a large urban county hospital. They're just not on average, they're not as educated and they're not as um, savvy with the medical system. And some of them are a little bit suspicious of the medical system. So sometimes it's difficult to enroll them and to keep them engaged in a study. Mm-hmm. If you're doing something prospective, we have a lot of challenges with that. And that comes back to the whole issue that I mentioned around recovery. We're, right. we're piloting a lot of different educational interventions to keep them informed about their care. And we know that if they're informed, they're more satisfied, they're more apt to follow our recommendations. And so it's kind of a win on the research front and on the recovery front at the same time that's mm-hmm. been helping, but, but she is correct. That is a huge issue. I would say the other thing that's been a real uh, advance in the trauma world and research is that uh, about you know, 15 years ago, the major extremity trauma research consortium started was a, a group of, of um, military and civilian centers that got together kind of using Johns Hopkins Public School Health as a, mm-hmm. as a foundation with a lot of seed money from the Department of Defense to look at issues that were facing trauma populations, both in the military and in the civilian side. And so partnering those centers, looking at things like bone loss and infection, fracture healing, 
Um, and it was a large study on recovery after trauma that he met too, and that was helped, helped us build our foundation to do that work. But with that group, you can do, you know, larger studies quicker. Hmm. There's an element, of course, of administrative and bureaucratic burden that goes along with that in terms of trying to get it set up at all the places. But there is some structure and some, some funding uh, to look at these studies um, and to do really large, uh, good studies. And there's been some high quality work that's come of that. So it's interesting. I think that, you know, to, to, your, to your colleague, um, maybe partnering with just one or two friends at other hospitals. It's another mm-hmm. way that we've done this a little bit where you can kind of pool all your people and then you get that larger sample a little bit quicker because it's, it's kind of depressing to say like, oh, I'm looking at enrolling people in this study and we're doing it for like five years and then it's like seven years. Like, <laughs> you're like, wow, oh, are we still doing that? <laughs> There's a little bit of a fatigue problem <laughs> that can happen. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Um, which pathology or fracture do you think in orthopedic trauma that is just absolutely ripe for the largest improvement in outcomes over the next five to 10 years? I would say, this is is interesting. I I would say this issue around um, recovery interventions is really ripe because how we enhance outcomes and how we say, well, what I might think is a good outcome that patient might not think is a good outcome. So right. aligning expectations, I think, is like a big area that's not been touched and that needs to happen. But the piece kind of from a more traditional orthopedic sense, I would say, is, is um, osteochondral injuries and looking at ways to regenerate articular cartilage or to heal articular cartilage. It's still something that we don't really know how to do. We can get fiber cartilage to grow in, but that's an area that a lot of people are working on from basic science size. And I think combining that with trauma, people who have, um, you know, impaction injuries, just chondral destruction, chondral loss, they come to the hospital and part of their femoral condyle is missing, it's no longer there. Um, you know, what do you do for that? And, and this is an area that I think our basic science is really going to fold into and mm-hmm. make a big difference say, in the next five to 10 years. Nice. That's very cool. Um, I do want to move on to such a significant highlight that I think when I was reading your story is that you are currently the 36th president of the Orthopedic Trauma Association and the first female president of this prestigious organization. And so I was hoping that you can talk about what it means to you to be the first female president of the OTA. Well, thank you for asking that. I feel honored. It, it's really been, um, I guess something that, you know, as a, a physician starting in practice, I would never really have thought or aspired, right. but it kind of came about over a period of time, you know, I got involved in the OTA as a younger surgeon and I, I encourage other people to, because the organization has so much to offer. It's a, it's a wonderful society, whether you're interested in teaching research advocacy, um, just a variety of, of things that, that we participate in in the trauma community. And so um, it's exciting to be the first woman. And I feel like more and more women are going into orthopedic surgery and trauma for that matter. And so mm-hmm. it will slowly change over time. And, and that's been fun. But I think even more important to me is that it's an extremely uh, functional organization with a very strong rap- track record of accomplishments. And so it's exciting to work with a group of like-minded people who are really improving upon trauma care in our world. And no, that's so exciting. And I was hoping 
that you've been president for, um, I don't know how many months, but I was hoping you can humble brag and tell us what you have accomplished as president of the OTA. Yeah, this is, this is kind of a, a tricky thing. So much of what we do, really, I can't take credit for. It's not me. It's a group. It's a group right. of, of uh, the board is very functional and then other leaders from within the society. And so really kudos to everybody for having a strong vision and really a lot of follow through. And so one of the things that's neat about this appointment is it's actually a five-year appointment. And so wow. you come into the board as a second president-elect and a president-elect, then you're president for a year. And then you hang around for two years after that as the immediate past president and the second past president. And so that helps with organizational memory and mm -hmm. just continuity of projects. And there's a lot going on. And we have a lot of very different roles each year where we're um, directing certain committees and things like that. And it transitions over time. Mm -hmm. So I've been on the board uh, already for a few years before I got into the presidential line. And so some of the things that have been the most fun to work on, you know, at, at this point have been... Um, you got to be the, the chair of the publications committee. And so we revamped our whole educational offering. And I just want to kind of put a plug, you know, go to online. It's an awesome educational resource. It's designed mm. to be kind of the premier uh, resource for residents and fellows and training and for community mm. surgeons. There's a lot of high quality information on there, technical videos, um, research videos from mm. meetings and such, um, and ways to connect with industry partners if you need particular guide you can kind of access everything through that port and it's been wow. a work in progress now for a couple of years but it was a lot of fun to be the lead as that was rolling out and it was the vision of um, you know Bob Proby and a whole bunch of people from the OTA board for years but to help to to see that come to fruition was really tremendous and I would say that now some of the initiatives that were getting off the ground uh, was last year we went through a strategic planning process and we've we've developed a couple of task forces. One of them is a wellness task force. I think this is something that we were lacking a little bit as a society and I think in medicine in general, you know, how do we take better care of ourselves to take better care of our patients? And so that's going to be a, a big initiative where we're going to be um, developing some programming this year. Um, it's pretty, pretty exciting. I think that that's going to help us to stay healthier and a little bit more aware of who we are. Um, there's some mentorship programs that are going on to help people mentoring them for maybe coming up if you want to get involved in leadership in the OTA, if you want to be a researcher so that we can help to provide a mentorship platform for our, our members. And we're doing a little more in the way of, of global outreach. And this is kind of in junction with that uh, OTA online. We're trying to find ways to get people to be able to access our platform and to engage professional mm -hmm. societies from other parts of the world or just individual surgeons in areas that are grossly under-resourced that they could have access to, to current techniques. And so those are a couple of things that are happening. It's, it's interesting too, you know, most of the people that have come through the presidential line have one or two things that they kind of pick out as like, this is going to be my pet project this year. So just, right. you know, and I do have my, my little uh, personal thing that I wanted to do. And one was to draw attention to uh, gun violence. Um, mm. Our team has done a little bit of research on, on gunshot patients. I feel like it's this little... I guess for lack of a better way of saying this, stepchild of um, things that we do in trauma. A lot of people don't really like to study it. They won't be known as sort of a gunshot person. There carries a lot of um, controversial conflict, public opinion on it. And, and I really feel like it's not, a, it's a public health issue to me. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, the fact is that there's a lot of people coming into our trauma centers who are um, 
they survive gun violence. And so we want to mitigate that. And there's issues right. around recidivism and how we can help to educate patients and families and try to enhance support systems to reduce the propensity for um, recurrent trauma. Uh, but also, you know, how do we manage um, gunshots efficiently and cost effectively because it's a huge economic burden too, not just the immediate medical care, but the care down the road. And so that's one thing I want to kind of draw attention to through educational initiatives and maybe encourage more research in. So we'll, you'll see a little more hopefully coming the way of, of programming the specialty day next year. We have a little bit more of a gun, gunshot uh, education and awareness. Um, I also want to draw more attention to these issues around recovery, which I believe that traumatologists kind of know that, yeah, we fixed the bone, but there's all those other things that might be broken about the person. But how do we get our arms around that? And most people say like, well, we don't really have services at my hospital or they're, yeah, they're kind of overtasked. And so we don't, we don't really have the ability to plug our patients in. What do I do? I don't have money or I don't know how to start that. I don't have time. And it's, it's, it's difficult and it's kind of overwhelming. You know, you think about it. And so uh, I want to work with the colleagues that are on our team. And, and there's a handful of people around the country who I know are very passionate about this too, but really to try to find ways to educate trauma providers and to help this to become standard of care to have said offerings in your hospital. Mm -hmm to improve the recovery of the patient as a whole. And so, you know, trying to get it as one of the <clears throat> things that the American College of Surgeons says is a requirement for level one and level two trauma centers, that you need to have some recovery programming, which might entail basic things like PTSD screening, like having um, counseling services available 24 hours a day, um, having some elements of a, a peer program or patient education initiatives that go through because these things now our research is starting to show they increase patient satisfaction they reduce cost they reduce people coming back to the emergency department right. reduce readmissions it just kind of makes sense and so it's tough because it's hard to start it from scratch you don't have the money if you don't have these the skills but the money part is intriguing because man if you could avert one or two readmissions that pays for the whole program for a year Right. And so it's just a matter of figuring out how to communicate that and make it real for people. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of um, excited about uh, promoting this year as OT president. Wow. That's so cool. I think that that's, I think it's great that everybody kind of brings their own flavor as they come in as president. And it's also nice that you're there for five years. So you have this kind of continuation of projects, so to speak, and just you have that constant communication to make sure nothing kind of gets left behind, so to speak. Yeah, it is. See, I can't take credit for that. It's just it's already that way. It's, it's good. Take advantage of it. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I would love to talk about another aspect of your bio that I love is your um, education record in the sense that you were voted as educator of the year by the residents of Case Western last year. Um, you've been the director of education in the orthopedic surgery department at Metro Health from 2002 to 09, as well as 2012 to 15. Um, were you a teacher prior to going into medicine? If not, how did you learn to be so adept at teaching your knowledge to others? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think I kind of had that, um affinity a little bit um, 
prior to in medicine as an undergrad, I was an exercise instructor. So oh. <laughs> I taught fitness classes and you know, I enjoyed that and, and I like working out. So that was mm-hmm. open for multiple reasons. And then when I got into medical school, um, I realized there were opportunities to teach. They needed teaching assistants for histology and for anatomy. And you could use that if you got one of those positions, they would defer half your tuition. So it was a really good cost savings. I thought, wow, that could be fun. It's good experience. I'd really like to do that. Mm-hmm. And I got a position and I taught histology for two years and it was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't even that, I mean, the, the topical material was interesting, but I wasn't super passionate about it, but I was passionate about the teaching part. So I learned something right. about myself that it was what I enjoyed. And I didn't really have formal instruction on it. It just kind of was like trial and error, see what works. But I, I felt excited about the ability to convey knowledge and get other people enthused about it so that they could, mm-hmm. they could learn too. And so then, you know, subsequently I taught other, other classes and I, I always, envisioned as I was getting into residency and ultimately I'd like to get an academic job where I could teach residents and students and maybe fellows and maybe in a formal sense at courses but more informally just at weekly and monthly teaching conferences at home base and in the OR in the clinic mm-hmm. and that sort of thing so that's how I've kind of gone about it without that that formal piece hmm. do you wish that there was a formal piece available for surgeons and surgeons in training yeah, and I think that things are, there are some formal uh, aspects of it now. You know, EO um, North America does a pretty nice job at um, bringing people in and helping to teach them how to be effective educators. Right. And so that's one, one entity that's been doing this now for a while, and they're, they're kind of at the lead. Um, it's one of the initiatives that, that we're working on a little bit in the OTA in mm-hmm. terms of people who are fellowship directors. We're trying to create formal educational opportunities for them. Uh, not only as a, a teacher, but as more of a, a, a leader and administrator. And so, yeah, the, these things are out there. And I think, you know, some medical schools are offering them. I've, I've kind of gone back. I haven't done it in a while, but, but several years ago, I was taking part of some of the things they offer at Case Western in the way of small group teaching and how to give a more effective lecture and things like that. Because, you know, we, we're just kind of winging it. And you see things that you go like, oh, that was a really effective way of doing that. I want to remember that. You know, I'm always kind of on the lookout for stuff. And you have those amazing teachers and role models. Go, what was it about how they could distill this problem down in a way that made it easy to understand? Mm-hmm. And so I kind of do that, but I haven't been as intentional about it. It's been a little bit more on the fly. And, and you know, I think that if you're interested in, in teaching, you want to get better about it. There are so many opportunities that we have just throughout the day. You probably realize this, you know, as a resident, and there's right. some people that take the time and they enjoy it. And that's a little bit of extra time, but you don't have to add a ton of time. Maybe it's a morning sign-out conference. You just point out a couple of really interesting things about an x-ray. Maybe it's not even why you're looking at that x-ray, but it was an incidental thing that was there. Mm-hmm. So you can draw attention to items that happen just as you're going through the course of your, your regular day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the other piece that goes with it is if you're excited about it too, it, it parallels this idea of what, what we refer to as a hidden curriculum. It's sort of how you carry yourself, how you act. Mm-hmm. Um, not just like, well, I'm going to go give my lecture now at Grand Rounds. So I'm going to give a good lecture, take some feedback. But, you know, how do you, how do you teach when you're not formally teaching? How do you behave? How do you interact with your patients? How do you interact with colleagues, people in the OR, setting up the room? What happens when your case gets formed? How do you manage that? Right. So there's, a, there's a lot of teaching you can do, and it's, it's really a daunting proposition because I feel like I'm, 
it's it, you're constantly overwhelmed with, oh, that's frustrating. Oh, I'm angry about that. Oh, mm-hmm. this is really disappointing. How do you manage all of those emotions and try to spin it constructively? Like at the end of the day, we need to get through this. We're going to take care of this person. Yeah, we've had to take a detour now. We're, we're concerned that that wasn't the pathway that we wanted. We don't necessarily agree with how it came about, but this is the deal. And we're going to move on. And I think that you can teach by how you act and how you mm. respond to those situations. It's something I've tried to be a little bit more um, conscious about uh, as a professional because I think it, it really does have a lot of impact on the people around you. And, and then the team, you know, the, right. the nurses, the other providers in the OR. And, and, you know, hopefully if we can treat each other with respect and navigate through the challenges that come up day to day like that, then I think we, we are more happy and we have a better team long-term. Right. I know this might be an odd question, but do you think your, it's such sage advice and wisdom. Do you think that your, basically the fact that you're a parent has anything to do with the fact that you have this calm demeanor when things are hitting the fan? You know, I, there's, I remember I have a, I have a puppy right now and she, um, funny story was that she had pooped in our bedroom and then stepped in her poop and then just ran all over the carpet in our bedroom and it, it, the only thing that we literally could do was just laugh and be calm about it. And it, because the fact that it was, there's literally just poop everywhere. Um, but I was wondering if like your, just the fact that you were a parent just allows you to just kind of know to be calm and how to present yourself. Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting anecdote, but I think it has direct parallels like you're getting at to, to what we do. And I would right. say that for me, yes, that's definitely one thing you start to be able to filter through like okay this has gotten super complicated that is just a total mess like Mm -hmm. let's just wait for it to stop okay now how are we going to clean up right (laughs) gotta move on and try to keep that composure and you know in in a similar way um you see people in the or um you get into an arterial bleed something's not going well oh your patient um you know is doing poorly from a cardiac standpoint Mm-hmm. Maybe they have cardiac arrest on the table. They're dying. Right. How are you going to do? What are you going to do when that happens? What are you going to do when a trauma patient comes in and they're exsanguinating? You're trying to save their life. And I think for me, the best thing I can do, I mean, I'm a spiritual person, so I pray a little bit, and that helps me find my my focus and know where I'm at. But just say like, okay, people are going to look to me to be in charge to take control of the situation. They'll see it as like, oh yeah, here I go see it more as like, how do I engage everybody around the room? Because some of them are going to be afraid. They're not going to know what to do. They're going to feel overwhelmed. There's going to be blood all over the place. Give everybody a job to do things. First is going to come in. Here's going to be the first two things we look at. Keep talking to the anesthesiologist in charge. Keep talking to the trauma critical care provider. So communicate, stay composed. You got to stay composed because otherwise nobody else will be. If Mm -hmm. they see you and you're, you're frantic and you're losing it. So I think trying to find that calm and to continue to move forward. And, and these are things that we trained for for so long. You know, we, we know like, oh, these are the things that I have to do. But then when it happens, it's easy to just have it fall by the wayside. And you feel a little bit uh, paralyzed, stressed. It's messy and it's, it's all happening so quickly. And oh my gosh, this person is going to die. But it doesn't help us if we can't stay composed and just work through those things that we do. So kind of try to train myself. And it gets, obviously you get more reps out of it. Mm-hmm. It helps quite a bit. But the, the thing about being a parent is, is definitely, that definitely was formative for me. And I think even just 
being a being a spouse and and right. helping you beyond that with your communication skills and your understanding of others and just sort of a wider perspective of the world and mm-hmm. tolerance and and being a better listener. I feel like oh, I'm naturally a, an impatient person. I want to get things done. I want to finish. And I've had to teach myself to be more patient, to listen, mm-hmm. to wait, and to try to, you know, if you want to solve the problem, maybe it's not going to happen right that minute. And to accept like, okay, well, I'm going to do the best I can. This isn't working out like I thought, but this is what we're going to do. And mm-hmm. to, to recognize at the end of the day, it'll, it'll turn out okay. And to look back and see what could I have improved upon? Because that's an important piece too, whether it's a complex trauma situation and you do a debrief later that day or the following day or at m um, or, you know, something on a smaller scale to continuously look back and figure out how can we grow as a person and move forward. And it might, might feel uh, exhausting, like, no, I don't really feel like I'm getting better at it, but you are. Right. It's just sometimes hard to see when you're in the thick of it. Yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. I would, I know we've talked a lot about kind of what you've done in the past and what you're doing right now. And I was hoping you can talk about your future goals slash projects clinically in your research and with your work in various organizations. Yeah, thanks. This is, this is kind of neat. Um, well, one of the things that I, I feel is really lacking in medical education and orthopedic education for that matter are just um, resources about how to um, be a professional, how to transition into practice. And so actually a couple of years ago, started doing a thing at our sign-out conference for like 10 minutes where we talk about a topic. Maybe we're talking about how do we do uh, medical costing? How do we do um, uh, billing? Um, what does this mean? You know, managed characterizations, what is that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All these acronyms that people throw right. around. So I kind of have, been doing this every week now for a while. And we, we even put together a couple of residents have been helping me with it, like a little um, self-test, a patient case example and say, well, what if, you know, this 82 year old female fell, she has this comminuted virtual fracture and she comes in and asks them about, how do you call this out? Well, what do you think the costs of care are for taking care of her? Well, what happens if she has an MI, she's in CCU for a couple of days, what are the costs of care? What do you think we get reimbursed for Medicare? How does that work? People have no idea. I had no idea. I didn't even know how I, yeah. where, where, I put a bill in. How does that work? Well, we're, we're teaching it now. And so one of the things I want to do this year after my president year ends at the OTA is going to get together with a couple of other people and, and try to write a book, hmm. put together a book. I don't know if it'll be electronic or maybe we'll publish it on paper, but a set of resources, just basic resources around practice management issues and around professionalism and transitions from residency and fellowship into life as a surgeon and hopefully make it something that has like a little bit of a living book element to it because I think some of these things change a lot over time in terms of regulations and that sort of thing but I'd like to do that and and maybe make a section of that or a separate one on mentoring and advising. So I think that that's something that I found catchy when I was going through trying to find someone, not the least of which is just even to find female role models or mentors, women or for other people in underrepresented areas, it can be really challenging and it's not essential, but it's nice to have that. And so, you know, how to be a good mentor and and how to mentor other people, how to be a good mentee and and what what does that look like and how can it be helpful? So, um, one of my goals that I've been mulling over my head is to 
work on that a little bit in the next few years. And then just to continue with this whole effort to promote uh, recovery of the whole patient after trauma, the things I already touched on, but very much changing the way that we care for trauma patients by opening our eyes to all of these other elements and making it real that it can happen, that we can intervene on some of the underlying social, um, psychological, and economic issues that the trauma patient has. Wow. Big goals, but that just sounds so amazing. So I really wish you the best of luck with that. Um, Dr. Valier, I know that you have many things to do and I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. So I would love to go into our final segment, which is the final five, which are the same five questions I ask every guest on the She Can Fix It podcast. And so my first final five question for you is what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? So this is, this is so funny that you, you asked this final five, because my husband will tell you, like, what, what would you say to that? And I would say, I don't like to pick. I don't like to choose. <laughs> I can never pick my favorite. And so I'm going to do that, but I'm trying not to talk too much. But I would say nailing a femur mm-hmm. and also putting in an iliosacral screw with the caveat that it, you have to have like this three or four centimeter diastasis of the SI mm-hmm. joint and that one screw percutaneously just reduces and squishes the whole thing down. There's something so satisfying about that. Like any <laughs> dramatologist that I just love doing that. And it's, right. it is super fun. Um, but nail and femur, you know, you get a person that is in a bad way. They're hurting They're um, Sometimes they have other injuries too, but you do that one procedure, which technically is sometimes complicated, but usually not that bad. And they're up and they can walk on it right away. I feel like, oh, it's such a cool thing to be able to help them and have such a large amount of impact on their physiology, on their pain, on their Mm -hmm. their ability to get up and move. It's really cool. That's awesome. Do do you have more fun doing anagrade or retrograde? Anagrade. Anagrade. I like anagrade because it's a little more old school. Um, Retrograde um, has become more commonplace, but I, I like anagrade. And I usually do piriformis. I don't like to go through the adductors if you don't mm-hmm. have to. But um, I like it because I like teaching it. I like people to recognize what are the pros and cons of going anagrade versus retrograde. So it affords that other opportunity. And I feel like it's still better for the patient for most of the femur fractures. You don't have to go right. through the knee window. No, so true. So true. What are your go-to topics for grand rounds, presentations, or invited speaking engagements? Yeah, so the two that I probably use the most often, things I'm super passionate about, and one is just um, issues around timing of fixation in a multiple injured patient. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of the research we've done and, and the, the history around that I find really fun just to kind of give a little historical walk through orthopedic trauma and why we fix fractures early and, and how it's you know, really come to benefit uh, patients. And the other one is issues around optimizing recovery and looking at ways to uh, engage patients and families to mitigate pain and to enhance their recovery aside from the things that we traditionally learn as orthopedic surgeons. Hmm. That's awesome. What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? So the, the, I don't have a one coolest story, but the coolest theme, I think, it's just such an honor to work with so many people, a lot of uh, residents, students, fellows who come through, younger faculty, and feel like our walk, our path, they cross, we share the same path, and then people mm-hmm. part and go a different way. But then every once in a while, you get a glimpse, and you realize, like, oh my gosh, that 
student worked with us for like five years and now he's publishing papers on his thing or I saw he gave a, gave a talk at the academy and then we connect and we mm-hmm. you know meet up later and have lunch and I feel like my orthopedic family is all of these people who have led the way for me that I've been able to help and it's really a lot of fun to mm-hmm. have that orthopedic family and in particular some of my mentees have gone on to do amazing things and, and it's neat to see the impact that they're having on the field and I feel honored to have been a little part of their life. Oh, that's special. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? So um, time outside of um, medicine, I like to spend time with family. Right now, um, my uh, father-in-law lives with us and our son moved back in the two. So we have kind of an extended family house, which is typical. <laughs> kind of fun and 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 spending time with family um we often will take a vacation where we like to do hiking and go to mm-hmm. remote locations national parks i really like that it's a little bit few and far between it's a little bit hampered by covid right now i would say that gardening um i i enjoy vegetable gardening crayon gardening rose gardens we have a yard where you can do a lot of different dabbling and growing things and, mm-hmm. and i'm in charge of a very larger garden at our church which I, I really um, enjoy. I meet a lot of people from that community, mm-hmm. which is fun. So those are my favorite outlets right now. What has been your favorite national park to go to? Oh, that's really tough. I know, it's a tough one. <laughs> um, I can give you a top three if that's easier. Uh, I would say, I would say maybe the Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so many that are so good. Right. But the Grand Canyon, I mean, it's just unbelievable. When you get there, it almost looks fake because it's so huge. It's mm-hmm. so vast. It's just uh, spectacular. And so, yeah, I really, um, I like a lot of uh, natural settings, but maybe that one. Right. That one too. And I haven't been there in quite a long time. So it's one that maybe we need to revisit. Yeah, I had no idea you're apparently able to go down into the Grand Canyon. My, I went oh, with yeah. my dad and we took a, like, you know, one of those little tiny planes and went over and it, I mean, that was beautiful in and of itself, but I had no idea that you can actually go down into the Grand Canyon. Yeah, that's really cool. I have been down partway in, um, and never went down all the way in. I've been around the, on the top. I've done a lot of the hiking out there. Mm-hmm. So much time. Yeah. I have to go back. Yeah, I know. Got it. Got to just check all these off of my list. Seriously. Um, my final question for you, Dr. Valier, is what advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Yeah, I think that um, I'm a very goal-oriented person. So I would say, you know, we, we all are. I mean, you would have got to this level if you're not setting goals and looking at continuously meeting and refining them. So keep doing that and keep making your goals just a little bit ahead, maybe where you'll be. So when you land there, if you don't quite reach that goal, wow, you still accomplished quite a bit. And keep doing that and, and be committed to working really hard. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that old adage of like, you got to nurture yourself, take care of yourself along the way. And I think that's easy to get lost, especially in training or in those first years of practice. So, uh, you know, adapt. Um, this concept of resilience and, and wellness that we hear a lot about now that those are real things and they're very, very important and they're really easy to put off. Don't put them off. Don't wait until it's too late. Make sure that you take care of yourself and don't forget who you are. The other thing I would say is just to have a little bit of skepticism about 
what you read and what you see, because there are a lot of different ways to do things. And our patients teach us a lot over the years. You'll learn many things that you didn't expect to. And so view the world with a little bit of skepticism. I think for me, that's led to some research work that was really fun and really productive. You know, like say an example, like um, when I was a chief resident, why are we fixing these tables fractures in the middle of the night? Like, I'm not sure we're doing like a super great job and, and do we know? And then you start reading about it and you're like, well, maybe we don't need to. Right. So I don't wanted to look at that. So we looked at that. Now, you know what? We don't do that anymore. We reduce hmm. things, but we don't stabilize them in the middle of the night. Right. Why do we fix femur fractures in 24 hours? Why is it 24 hours? Why is it some other number? How do we know that? Why don't we worry about fixing the pelvis in 24 hours? So just ask questions, question the dogma, view it with skepticism. And then I guess the last piece of advice would be to try to pay it forward. I mean, mm -hmm. I think already, you know, there's people that came before me who were kind to get me involved in the project, open the door, introduce me to somebody. How do you pay it forward? Because I can't pay back those people even if I know where they are, <laughs> they're in a different place. And I, right. I feel like it's, it's neat to talk with them and to watch, but maybe you can pay it forward to other people by providing them with an opportunity, a platform, um, you know, sharing an authorship, handing off some of those teaching assignments and letting them take the podium at a po an important meeting. Those right. are really neat things to do. And it, it helps our world to be a better place, our orthopedic world and, and beyond. That is so special, Dr. Valier. Thank you so, so, so much for spending the time with me. I learned a lot and I am just so grateful for you spending the time with us. Oh, well, thank you for doing this. This is really a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Heather Valier. Please subscribe to our podcast to show your support. Another way you can provide support and keep this podcast up and running is to donate. You can visit our website at www.shecanfixitpod.com and visit our donation page. I want to take this time to thank my lead editor and co-producer, Andrea Munger, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thank you so much for listening and please stay safe. <music>